This is Indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And if it's Monday, it's Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk. And we have with us this Monday the Mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedergartner. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. I would love to start by asking you about some stories on the front page of the Greenfield Recorder Saturday and today. Today's headline is Towns Pummeled by Rainstorms. Saturday's, or the weekend's Greenfield Recorder's headline, Relentless Rain Continues. We have spent a fair amount of time, but probably not as much as is absolutely appropriate, on what these rains, these torrential rains, have meant for our region. I'd appreciate it if you could share with us what these torrential rains have meant and how they have affected Greenfield. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, The first thing I want to say is it was uh, handling the storm and handling the damage and assessing it was a a major combined effort between our DPW, our police department, and our public uh, fire department, sort of the the key public safety team when we have, well, any kind of disaster, but particularly natural disasters. So I want to give a big shout-out to all of those people, and they continue to work on it. Certainly the DPW does. We have it's interestingly enough, if you drove around Greenfield right now, you probably would think, well, nothing's too bad here. But the places that are bad are really, really bad. <laughs> and they're mostly different residential places, places that, like Newell Pond Place, which is off of Bernardston Road, North Greenfield. There's three houses there. It's actually quite a lovely spot. And um, there's a pond that's there obviously new pond and so obviously it started with water <laughs> it just continued to fill up the road to, from Bernardston road into new pond is is basically impassable um it has a big i'm looking at pictures now it's just got a big major hole in the road and the culverts that um go under it are completely filled with a lot of um sand and rock and debris so that's priority one, according to DPW today, is to get uh, a handle on um, those culverts and what we have to do to get them replaced and how soon we can do that. Are there many um, roads that are affected? Uh, are there many I, residents that are affected, or are things yeah, kind of back to normal? Yeah, I was just going to say numbers of residents affected. I don't know that I have a count, nor that I have even seen one. Um, There were several roads affected. Um, As I say, mostly more, they're not the main, uh, what I would call the inner core roads. They seem to all be normal. But Newell Pond Place, Scout Road, um, trying to think of a couple of others. Um, were majorly affected um, and, you know, will take a lot of uh, repair, you know, more than we certainly budgeted for this year. So we're working closely with uh, the Healy administration, uh, our legislative delegation, and uh, to to make sure that we we can cover the costs along with the rest of Franklin County, for that matter. So I realize we're all in this together. Really? It's a, it's major- a, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the other major thing is right away, 4 o'clock on Saturday afternoon, uh, 
well, it wasn't right away. Obviously, it's four o'clock. By four o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, our wastewater treatment plant had um, overflowed, and that was the second time in a week because, as you know, it was less than a week prior to this that we had uh, more uh, or had additional had other rain had the first wave of rain, and uh, the grounds was ground and everything was still saturated. Mayor, Mayor, waste- could you stop there for one second? I, I, I want to hear more about the wastewater treatment plant, and in particular, the reports that I read that there was an enormous amount of untreated sewage that came from Greenfield into the local waterways. Is that accurate, and can you tell us more about that? That is completely um, accurate, um, and uh, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember the uh, amount. But we're talking tons. Actually, um, I'm looking. I'm looking right now, Mayor, yeah. and I see 14.7 yeah. million gallons a day. Yeah, 1,500 yeah. gallons per minute, um, yeah. and that is untreated sewage. That's before the chlorination that's, and all that. Correct. Yeah, it could not. The, the uh, wastewater treatment plant could not handle it. So it's the Green because, River, yeah. and what other waterways were impacted? Uh, the Green River, the Connecticut River. Um, I feel like there was a third river, but I don't. But Deerfield, the river, Deerfield, I think Deerfield River, of course. That it's in fact the wastewater treatment plant sits on the Deerfield River, or just where the where the Green River and the Deerfield River kind of come together. I believe it is. So, um, so there was an advisory for people not to go in these these waterways. Is is that still in effect? Yes, yes, it is. Mayor, um, Mayor does, do this, believe- does, does this, let me ask you this, does this mean yeah. that, that, that Greenfield's going to have to invest in an upgrade or, to the wastewater treatment plant because it doesn't have the capabilities of dealing with this kind of a deluge, which, well, may be a precursor to more events like this? The new normal. Well, I don't know that we know that yet. I mean, it has generally been able to handle pretty major storms um they uh, the latest report i got which was an email last evening from dpw director there's something called the scada system that's an acronym i have no idea what it is but it monitors the wastewater treatment plant and the drinking facilities and it it appears that they believe that it may have um, suffered a lightning strike on friday and so that may have been uh, sort of the start of it all because it couldn't monitor it. So the people in the plant didn't really have a sense of, you know, they weren't getting accurate reads would be my guess. Believe me, I am no wastewater treatment expert. <laughs> Is the plant back to functioning, the wastewater treatment plant? Is it back to functioning normally now? I don't know if it's normally functioning, but I do believe it's functioning, yes. I'd like to go back to another aspect of the floods, if I might, and that is how they have, and if they have, affected Greenfield economically. Can you tell us about that? Well, I did ask that question over the weekend of some folks um, that have a handle on the businesses in town and the fire chief, because he was monitoring all the places that we had. Apparently, not really. Um, um, Christian in our economic and development 
uh, department said that they he had not received any calls or emails from local businesses, nor had uh, had the city as of yet. Um, so um, I'm working with the chamber and the Franklin County CDC to sort of begin to gather that data to see if we can do something to assist the smaller businesses, the very small businesses, some of which, of course, are farms, you know, and they're they're going to get hopefully also some aid from the state. Um, so uh, jury is still out on how many businesses. I know one that is uh, like a farm stand that's at the, what I call the bottom of Main Street just before you get to uh, you cross the Green River there on the left-hand side on Conway Drive. There's a farm stand that apparently, which is right on the river. Um, you know, its property goes down to the river. Um, it It is affected, has been affected. I have not been by there yet to see what the damage is. Mayor, has there been uh, a, a detrimental effect that you can tell us about with regard to other farm stands or farms in and around Greenfield? I don't have any reports of that. I do not. So um, I think that uh, Chief Strayan would have uh, let me know that, uh, and he has not. So uh, apparently they survive pretty well uh, around Greenfield. I'm not, you know, the Frank- Franklin County, there are some farms that, had some serious damage, and then, and I'm sure in Deerfield too. But, um, I'm not hearing at the moment that we've had, you know, Batinskis or some of the other farms that have farm stands at the moment. Let's turn to another topic, if we might, Mayor uh, Wiedergartner, and that is the other front page story on the of, of the Greenfield Recorder on Saturday, or the weekend, the weekend edition of the Recorder. Residents push rules to curb equity theft. Mayor cautions city councilors to pause in wake of potential state legislation. It's a major issue. Uh, it was mm-hmm. the subject of a uh, Supreme Court decision in the last month, uh, one of the decisions uh, towards the end of the term, and a decision that was widely applauded, a, un- a almost unique unanimous decision from the Supreme Court. Tell us what's happening in Greenfield on that and what your position is, please, with regard to equity theft. And for those of our listeners who don't know, tell us what it is. Well, I do want uh, everyone to know that uh, tax title taking or foreclosing on residents, which is where the process begins um, on residents' real property, is, is, is it's a very rare, rare occasion. And it's used only as a last resort. So um, we have a whole process that we go through where we allow, you know, we give residents ample notice, um, and it's basically a process that's been set forth by the state, at least the state uh, collector-treasurers, and we follow it to the letter, and they have, um, you know, more than 120 days before we even advertise a lien on the property. The vast majority of people who are behind in their taxes in Greenfield set up payments, uh, a, a payment system eventually with the town, which we allow them to do. So um, I'm not saying it is a model for other communities, but um, I suspect we we are among 
several cities and towns in the state that really don't want to take property away from people. Now, sometimes when we do, we have the right to cover all of our legal expenses and um, can keep whatever is left over. It's rare that anything of significance is left over. Well, you were allowed to. Let me let me interrupt for one second because the city of Greenfield and other municipalities were allowed to keep the difference. And let's back up just one second. Yes, Some a, a homeowner falls behind on their taxes. Uh, yes. The taxes go unpaid. There's now a debt to the city. Uh, there is a lien put on the property. Eventually, there can be a court case. And 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 at the end of the road, the sad end of this road can be. There's a foreclosure proceeding, and the house is sold to pay for the back taxes. What the Supreme Court said in its unanimous decision just recently was that if the sale is for more than what is owed, the municipality is not allowed to keep it. It's an unconstitutional taking for a municipality to take the, the, the sum that is remaining after the taxes are paid. And Massachusetts law allowed that. In other words, there's $100,000 owed, the house sells for 200000 and the municipality could keep the 100000 that was really the home equity of the owner of the building. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's an unconstitutional taking. That's the, that is, uh, at least in general, what this issue is about. And there is now a... Uh, Proposed, there's proposed legislation in the Massachusetts legislature to deal with this, okay. but there's also an ordinance pending in front of the Greenfield City Council. I'd appreciate it if you tell us what your position is with yeah. regard to that. So my position is uh, the same as it was in the, in the spring when we talked about it, or actually late fall, early winter when we talked about it last. I support state legislation, and I have gone on record as supporting that. And um, whatever the state law is, which by now, because of the Supreme Court decision, uh, you know, they may be taking another look at it. Um, it's, uh, it was in committee or is in the Joint Committee on Revenue. There was a hearing on June 22nd. With, and I, I don't know, was that prior to the Supreme Court decision? I think it might have been. Um, so... Certainly, when that legislation passes, the city will follow whatever directives it provides for handling tax title sales and protecting owners' equity. With regard to the Supreme Court decision, obviously, you know, uh, <laughs> we don't want to defy uh, a decision by the Supreme Court, at least at this point in time. Uh, but I think the states are allowed to uh, adjust their legislation accordingly. So I guess we have to wait and see what the state does. My advice to the city council was to slow walk on the ordinance because we did not want an ordinance that then ultimately is not um, properly written and doesn't uh, cover uh, and comply with both state and federal law. Well, because Greenfield is a city and has not been a town for some time, the state attorney general's office does not review bylaws or ordinances uh, any, any longer because the attorney general's office under state law only does that for town and not for cities. Uh, do you have some uh, opinion from 
uh, counsel yet that is public, I'm not asking for attorney-client privilege communication, that is public with regard to uh, uh, whether this ordinance complies, this proposed ordinance complies with the Supreme Court decision and state law? We do not. I do not believe it's been vetted. In fact, I'm not even sure, come to think of it, I, I you know, what, um, if the or appointments and ordinances committee has even fully vetted it yet. That's the subcommittee of the city council. So, um, you know, there are citizens who are pushing this, and that's certainly their right to do. Uh, but I think the city council has a responsibility to all the citizens, including the taxpayers who do pay their taxes, to um, to to do it right. And so I think they'd be wise to wait and see what. We are, speak- we are speaking with the mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedengardner, on this Mayor's Monday. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about police and fire and civil service right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry. Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads for the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. Talking to myself and feeling old 
Sometimes I'd like to quit Nothing ever seems to fit Hanging around Nothing to do but frown Rainy days and Mondays always get me <laughs> We continue our conversation on this Mayor's Monday with the Mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegartner. Madam Mayor, I'd like to return to a story we have covered before and a topic we've asked you about uh, involving the situation, the conditions for recent immigrants to Greenfield, mostly, I believe, from uh, Haiti. And when we last spoke, they were at the Days Inn, the families were at the Days Inn in Greenfield. Could you give us an update, please, on the recent immigrants, the recent arrivals uh, in your city? I sure can. Uh, we have, uh, at last count, I believe it's 41 families uh, in the Days Inn in Greenfield. They are, there are, you know, intact families with children, and some are single moms with children, um, and others are, um, you know, what we, immigrants who have come, come to us via the state. Um, so, they are ServiceNet is their uh, social service provider that was contracted uh, by the state, and they hand most of the services there. We are um, making sure that the building is remains safe from a from a fire standpoint. So uh, the health director and the fire chief do, and or people from the fire department, um, the safety officer, Captain Smith. Um, do make regular uh, stops by there to ensure that the rooms are uh, as they should be and the hotel is as it should be in terms of its fire alarm system and so forth. How long does the state, how long does the state uh, uh, planning to keep families in a motel? Well, they have told us up to 14 months. They, they continue to 14 months. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Um, they continue to try to settle them where, near if they have family here in Massachusetts. Some do. Some, you know, some of them left Boston to come here because they didn't have housing there, but they retain uh, family in Boston. So I think they're trying to resettle those families, at least the ones from Green that are in Greenfield in the Boston area as much as possible first and then currently working in other communities where it might be easier to settle them. I mean, we have a major housing crisis that runs across the gamut of all income levels and so forth in this uh, state. And I don't know what the solution is. I don't know what the solution is, Mayor Wiedegardner, but if people want to support these families, maybe they have a, a, a place for them to stay. Maybe they have furniture or clothes for them. Is it ServiceNet mm. who they should contact, or is there some other place people well, can make contact? We've had an enormous um, amount of response um, with regard to donations to the families. They would not be resettled in in someone's home, no. As near as I can tell, that is not part of the state plan. However, we had an enormous outpouring of toys and clothes and things to the extent that the health department was having to store them in the building that they're in, and they ran out of room. The hotel has run out of room, so I believe maybe it's even this week they will get, um, you know, a pod 
so that they can take some of the stuff off of our hands. But And that's everything from diapers to, uh, you know, people just extending their, you know, some of them even went so far as to buy gift cards uh, so that they could purchase things that they needed on their own and so forth and so on. So it's an enormous outpouring um, from the people who live here in Greenfield. One last question on this, Mayor, if I might. How was Greenfield selected as the destination for these for these recent immigrants? Well, that's interesting. Uh, I partly I think because we are on record, this happened about four or five years ago. Uh, it was it was not immigrants. It was basically homeless people from the state, from the Boston area. So I think we were on record, different hotel, that hotel doesn't exist anymore, but uh, we were on record, on the state's records as having available hotels. And um, then they landed on uh, Greenfield on the day's end. Um, I received that call, or call from uh, Lieutenant Governor Driscoll at 3.30 on an afternoon or now about seven weeks ago. Um, and I was, <laughs> I don't often hear from her. I do consider her a friend, um, and a, and a former mayor colleague. Um, that's how we met, but, um, she was calling to give me that quick heads up. And when I say quick, I mean quick. Uh, she called at 3.30 and told me that they would be arriving in Greenfield at 7 in the, um, at the day's end. And that was 14 families at the time and that they would continue to come. And she said, I was in a meeting about this very issue when I looked on the list of where we were going to place people, and I saw Greenfield, and I thought I said to the folks, as soon as this meeting is over, I'm calling the mayor to let her know that this is happening. Because up to that point, we had not been notified. Yeah, well, that's not much notice. Let me ask you to, uh, about another topic uh, before we go. Uh, there was a debate, I believe, at city council uh, the last meeting about whether the police and fire chief uh, would be taken out of civil service. It didn't ever. It didn't occur to me that the police and the fire chief were in civil <laughs> service. What is that about? Well, they are, and uh, the rank and file in both the fire department and the police department are not in civil service. Those have been negotiated out through their contracts. Um, the last was the fire department. I participated in that negotiation in whenever it was, 20 and 21. Um, and the police chief and the fire chief themselves want this to happen. And they primarily want it to happen so that we can. So they're the ones who have requested this and asked me to bring it forward to the city council. And I have done that now. Um they believe strongly that that is how we can have a wider pool to choose from when it comes to choosing, you know, the top person to run each of those departments. In some cases, there are people that come up through the ranks that are perfectly capable of being police chief. Um, but if they're in civil service, they have to take the exam. They have to pass the exam. There's a great deal of rigmarole. So it affects us. Um, it affects widely how that person's contract is written, how you can remove them if you need to remove them, or and uh, basically how you hire them. Um, so the key factor here, though, is that both police 
uh, Chief Haig and Fire Chief Strahan are grandfathered. So let's say we get this has to be done through the legislature. Um, there was an old law or an old process, I guess maybe it was governed by mass general law, where you had to go out the same way you came in. So if you went in by um, a vote of a, a town meeting or a town council or a city council, then you had to be vote. You had to be removed via that process. If you came in via uh, a state process, um, then that um, and when that was the fire chief's position that that came in in 1936, the police chief's position was in in the early 2000s and then out again and then back in again uh, via council vote. So this goes to the council. The council votes to remove the uh, chief of police and the fire chief from civil service, and then it goes to the legislature for its approval. That's exactly, and that is what happened last week. Okay. We're going to leave it there. We have been speaking with mayor uh, the mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedengartner, on this Mayor's Monday. Thank you for being with us, Madam Mayor. We really appreciate your time. Thank yeah. you. Stay Thank dry, you. Mayor. Yeah, you too, guys. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Rep. Lindsay Sebedosa says it's been very hard to watch the devastation of the recent flooding. Sebedosa says it's not just a question of the immediate impacts, but of the future. Because we can't get into a cycle where every year there's a catastrophic event and we're just providing relief. We have to figure out how we prevent this moving forward. Sabadosa says it's a reminder of climate change. A reminder that climate change is very, very real. I, you know, grew up in Massachusetts and floods in the middle of the summer are generally not a thing. Sabadosa says this is the new reality and legislators are working on how to provide as much relief as possible. A former Amherst man is facing multiple charges related to child pornography. 30-year-old Blake Lassier was in Hampshire Superior Court on Friday for a status conference. Lassier faces 11 charges for offenses dating from December 2021 to March 2022. Lassier is currently serving a prison sentence in Oregon on similar charges. A pretrial date is set for August 21st. Plans are moving forward for a new parking lot and green space in the center of South Deerfield. A second public forum was held last week to discuss thoughts on the proposed ideas by Berkshire Design Group. The Leary lot would have a proposed 64 to 79 parking spaces, along with green space. The space would also include electric vehicle chargers and would be wrapped around from North Main Street to Elm Street. Final designs will be presented and a third forum held on Monday, August 21st at 6 p.m. For today, we'll have a mixture of sunshine and clouds, slight chance for a spot afternoon shower thunderstorm, highs 84 to 88. Tonight, partly cloudy, overnight lows 62 to 66. And the outlook for Tuesday, partly sunny, chance for an afternoon shower thunderstorm, highs in the mid-80s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
la Corte Suprema de Estados Unidos tendría que cumplir con estándares de ética más estrictos según la legislación aprobada el jueves por el Comité Judicial del Senado. En respuesta a las recientes revelaciones sobre viajes de jueces financiados por donantes, el proyecto de ley enfrentó la oposición unida de los republicanos, quienes dijeron que podría destruir la Corte. El panel votó según las líneas partidarias para establecer reglas de ética para la Corte y un proceso para hacerlas cumplir, incluidos nuevos estándares de transparencia en torno a recusaciones, obsequios y posibles conflictos de intereses. Los demócratas impulsaron la legislación por primera vez después de los informes a principios de este año de que el juez Clarence Thomas participó en vacaciones de lujo y en un acuerdo inmobiliario con un importante donante republicano, y después de que el presidente del Tribunal Supremo John Roberts se negara a testificar ante el Comité sobre la Ética de la Corte. Desde entonces, los informes noticiosos también revelaron que el juez Samuel Alito se había tomado unas vacaciones de lujo con un donante republicano, y la prensa asociada informó la semana pasada que la jueza Sonia Sotomayor, con la ayuda de su personal, ha adelantado las ventas de sus libros a través de visitas a universidades durante la última década. El presidente del Comité Judicial del Senado, Dick Durbin, dijo que la legislación sería un primer paso crucial para restaurar la confianza en la Corte. Dijo que si alguno de los senadores sentados en la sala se hubiera involucrado en actividades similares, estaría violando las reglas de ética. La legislación de ética tiene pocas posibilidades de ser aprobada en el Senado o en la Cámara de Representantes controlada por los republicanos, pero los demócratas dicen que la avalancha de revelaciones significa que son necesarios estándares exigibles en la Corte. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. This is our Black in the Valley segment with Professor Amilcar Shabazz, who is a professor at the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies at UMass Amherst and a longtime devoted and effective political activist, both nationally and in the town of Amherst. And I want to talk about the town of Amherst. In particular, I'd like to talk to you, Professor, about your involvement and where the town is with regard to its uh, process of considering and working on the issue of reparations. And I am particularly interested in knowing what your perspective is at this point and what the town has done and plans to do because it was reported in the Daily Hampshire Gazette last week. I have been appointed to the commission in Northampton to study and make a recommendation on reparations as well. Let's talk about Amherst. Where does this process stand? Fantastic. Uh, glad for Black in the Valley to be taking this up today. So um, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and a accumulation of uh, many other injustices, uh, the Amherst Town Council uh, took a major step uh, under the leadership of uh, uh, Matthew Andrews, Corrine Andrews, uh, Michelle Miller, who later then was uh, subsequently elected to the Town Council. Uh, a resolution was uh, passed unanimously that the town really commit itself to ending structural racism. There was an acknowledgement, a deep acknowledgement of a history of racial injustice in Amherst, particularly that operated under the color of law, of municipal law. 
and that it was time now to address the uh, the vestiges, the the legacy, the uh, uh, in toto, the operation of, of of structural racism in in the town of Amherst. Uh, as a follow up to that, the uh, discussion emerged around. Uh, a reparative justice or, or black reparations program uh, being a part of a, a policy response to that issue of structural racism and addressing the issue of structural racism. And as a result of that, the town council again uh, passed a, a um, resolution creating a, uh, the African Heritage Reparations Assembly and they uh, set up the charge, and the town manager was uh, 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 to uh, populate that body with a uh, uh, with seven people. Um, uh, town manager Paul Bokelman did so. I was one of the the seven uh, appointees. Uh, six of our members are all uh, persons of African descent who live in Amherst. And uh, and one was a uh, was Michelle Miller, both our liaison to the council, our chair, and uh, overall our our fearless leader in getting this work done. The work has essentially been in following our charge to um, to propose a plan for what reparations uh, could look like, what kind of process by which it could happen. Uh, to research that, to uh, uh, and and to propose that, uh, particularly understanding that part of repair costs money, then it was how to identify what kinds of funding streams, what kinds of ways in which we could develop the the, the financial part of a local reparations project, and um, and and that work then uh, we were given initially. Uh, a one-year uh, kind of term to do it. It was extended to two years, and we are now at that two-year mark, uh, and and our report is coming in and on the docket for the uh, for a town council meeting in August to be discussed. To then, uh, following that, hopefully, many of the recommendations to be acted upon. Will there be a specific? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'm asking you to talk out of school here or not. Uh, but will there be specific recommendations to the town council as to what the reparations, what reparations in Amherst should be? So what I can say is this, is that as a part of the two-year period that we operated, we conducted a number of uh, listening sessions we reached out to the community in public events. We reached out to the community through a survey and on paper and online. We talked to uh, literally hundreds of people, especially many people, uh, or residents, black residents of Amherst. And, and so, yes, we've heard a wide variety of, of concerns. We heard powerful testimonies about, about harms, both historic and ongoing in Amherst that, that folks felt should be addressed through reparations. Uh, and so we do have a number of uh, comments and recommendations from the people themselves that we will be, we, we will articulate, we will report back on, on what we heard. But I think our primary thing is 
and, and a lot of that is educational because I can't say that from the time we started two years ago that uh, uh, reparations was a household word. It wasn't a household word amongst uh, persons of African descent uh, in Amherst, and it wasn't a household word across the entire population. So a lot of it was was educational, talking about what, what reparations can mean distinctly in a municipality like Amherst, not at the federal level, although we support at the federal level. And part of our recommendations is going to call upon the town to, to take very affirmative steps to, uh, uh, to acknowledge at the uh, to, our, to our federal lawmakers, uh, uh, to our president and beyond, uh, the support of our town for federal program of reparations, but, but really trying to talk about what can it look like on the local level. So it's really about the ongoing mechanism for this, because this isn't done with the report. This, the report offers a new beginning, a beginning for a kind of ongoing framework to get this work done. Professor Shabazz, this is Buzz. As we're talking about the local level, I, I think it's impossible to discuss reparations without talking about Florida, for example. For 6th and 8th graders in Florida, the 2023 social studies curriculum is going to include slaves having developed skills that were used for their personal benefit, like agricultural skills and blacksmithing and domestic service and tailoring. And there are actually people who are, while reparations is being discussed, in so many communities, like our communities, that is happening. This sort of we're in reverse in some places. What say you about that phenomenon? Well, you know, um, Buzz, I'm, I'm I'm a scholar of African American history, and um, you know, truth be told, we have we we have works such as uh, one book I'm thinking of by Dylan Pinnegroff that even talked about uh, that that talked about under slavery how African Americans uh, created wealth. For themselves, how they how they saved money, how uh, with the permission of their owners, of their owners, their masters, how they engaged in in a lot of of, of uh, skills development and and character um, um, character kinds of development that would later be very beneficial uh, as free individuals in terms of being able to accumulate wealth. We it it, it wasn't all just on the negative side of the ledger. The uh, uh, especially with those with skills and you know horseshoeing and cabinetry, you know woodworking and things like that 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 accumulated skills again with the permission of their owners and and sharing the proceeds of of their labors with their owner. Uh, um, but the uh, so there's a great deal of that. We have scholars that have long proven that, and that's that that has nothing. Uh, um, it, it ought, ought to be uh, learned and understood. Uh, because uh, otherwise what you get is, I don't know if any of you ever knew this guy, Stanley Elkins, historian that lived in this area. And, you know, Elkins had this Sambo thesis that talked about how coming out of slavery, blacks had been so infantilized, had been so psychologically damaged that they, that they could do nothing, that they were uh, a total, that's why they were totally servile. And, and, and true enough, there was a lot of harm like that, but overall, Deeper research in our history has proven that that's not the case. We struggled within the confines of slavery to develop skills, to learn how to operate within a capitalist America. We did a lot of things that still does not negate the harm, that does not negate the negativity. You know, someone could say, well, Jews benefited from the Holocaust because they got, because they got a, the state of Israel. How ridiculous would that sound? 
How inhumane, how, how insensitive does that sound? And yet that's what the folks in Florida are doing in the, in the pernicious way they're writing this in uh, uh, as, some, as some kind of you know, corrective to woke history. It's just stupid. It's just wrong. It's just insensitive. We are speaking with Professor Amilcar Shabazz, professor at the African-American W.E. Du Bois African-American Studies Department at UMass Amherst, longtime political activist. We are talking about reparations in Amherst, and we're going to come back and want to go back to what you said about structural racism in Amherst and what reparations will look like after this report is filed and discussed at town council. We'll be right back. King of my city, king of my country, king of my homeland, king of the filthy, king of the fallen, we living again, king of the shooters, looters, boosters, and ghettos popping. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Our beloved local hero farms, way too much rain, wiping out crops, wiping out entire farms. Our local hero farms matter too much to let them go down. We're all together on a rescue mission. Go to the Help Flooded Farms page at the CESA Local Hero website. Support a specific farm or donate to CESA's Emergency Farm Fund. Local Hero Farms, think what life would be like without them. Go to the CESA website, buylocalfood.org, to the Help Flooded Farms page, and kick in what you can. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Professor Amilcar Shabazz. We are talking about structural racism. We're talking about reparations in Amherst and Northampton. Could you spend another minute with us about structural, explain what you meant by structural racism in Amherst, which most people think of as being historically and in present times a progressive community? So what do you mean by structural racism as it affects Amherst? Okay, so first I'll come at it with the political economy of it. Um, the, the systematic domination, racial domination of African people uh, through the institution of slavery uh, had, had wealth benefits 
wealth benefits that were tied into the whole political economic structure by which you know, places like Northampton, places like uh, Amherst uh, directly uh, benefited. Trustees that set up Amherst College had uh, uh, investments in plantations in Mississippi. So they directly are benefiting from enslavement to, for the wealth that creates Amherst College, for example. Uh, but fast forwarding on up, again, under the color of law, we see in the 1950s uh, deeds that are stamped by the municipality that says this property should never be sold, uh, right on Blue Hills Road, or a road in, in, in Amherst, should never be sold to a, a, a colored, a black person or black persons. You know, this is the, this is the way in which racism is, is baked into the legal structure of the society. And that happens here in Amherst as well as it did all over the United States. So that's what we're calling out the, 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 and the ramifications of that. With regard to the uh, commissions, the committees studying reparations and making recommendations to Amherst, and that will be followed by recommendations as well to Northampton, what do you make of two close-by municipalities taking on this, this challenge at the same time or close to the same time? I think it's fantastic, and I think there's so much that our collective brain power here in the Valley can can really uh, uh, lead the way on from across the state. You know, of course, Boston's uh, in on it now and has a commission, but uh, I think combined, our combined strength is Northampton and Amherst and, and the way in which uh, our work can, can perhaps uh, trickle out to Greenfield and to uh, and, uh, Holyoke and, and, and Springfield and other places, it's, um, it, it, it's very heartening to me. I even think about things like our, our Route 9 that connects Northampton all the way across Hadley, all the way into Amherst. What if we could collectively rename that something like, you know, David Ruggles Way or, or uh, Ruggles um, uh, uh, Truth Way, you know, for Sojourner Truth and David Ruggles, you know, to, to, to recognize their... Uh, um, their, their importance to this area and importance to the history. So I think there's a lot we can, we can do together, and I think it's very important to see this work. And congrats to you, Bill, for, for taking on you know, uh, that work and bringing your expertise to the project. I just, I just want to point out Great Barrington and other Southern Berkshire towns, they were doing it 10 years ago. They, they were convening committees to talk about reparations, and they still are trying to figure out how they can move forward on it. Jacob's Pillow was a stop on the Underground Railroad, right? Yes, indeed. Ashfield, Massachusetts, beautiful stop on the Underground Railroad. So tell us, if, if you can, um, whether there will be financial uh, implications or resources that will need to be made available from the town, or am I asking you to... No, I'm, Bill, Am I, am I on, a, on a topic that you can't comment on? Anyway, tell us what this you can. Is, this is important. We've been saying this all along the way. Uh, you know, our, our um, Amherst High School graduate, brilliant economist at Duke University, uh, Sandy Darity, uh, William Darity Jr., often commented that these kinds of municipal things are detours, that the real, the real issue is the, the, the wealth gap uh, and, and the way we can close the racial wealth gap through reparations, but only at the federal level is where the money is. And we're 100% in agreement with that. We don't think our work is a detour. 
however, because we think there are ways in which on the local level we can tie into that federal, that larger federal project. But yes, the kind of money that can really close the wealth gap, that can address the, the uh, effects of structural racism at the political economic level will not, be, will not happen on the budgets of Northampton uh, city budget or, or uh, Amherst budget. So we're really talking, but, but it's not to say there won't be some money spent. We have a commitment already uh, from our work here in Amherst to develop an endowed kind of fund of $2 million out of which, if you think five percent interest or whatever in the in the in the wall in the market uh, Wall Street marketplace um, can can generate um, you know a, a, a nice chunk of change annually that we can go towards specific kinds of projects that can help uh, deal with issues financially. We're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Professor Amilcar Shabazz. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for all your efforts. Thank you for all you do for our community, Thank you, Professor. Thank you, Buzz. This has been Black in the Valley. I need some get back. Pay back. Pay back. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. WHMP North This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And I am thrilled. I'm thrilled because we have with us uh, national security expert, former chief of staff for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Miles Taylor. Hello, Miles Taylor. Hey, guys. How are you? Oh, we're great. I'm really, I'm so happy that you are joining us. I, I, uh, we have so much to talk about with, with you and your new book, Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump. And as an insider who is writing once again about your experience as an insider in the Trump administration, it's, it's so much, this, this book is just loaded. And, and when, we, when we found that you were going to come, Dan Torres, our producer here, Dan said, oh, I bought the book and I love the book. Dan. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, and, and it wasn't just about the politics of it. You, it got really personal. And I thought that was one of the, the biggest strengths. I also just love it. It's so well written. Yeah. It's so easy to read your book, Miles. Yeah. 
Well, guys, why didn't I come to you first to blurb the book? I should have had your quotes on the back of the copy. That would have been awesome for we're me. Not called, yeah. We're not called Talk the Talk for nothing, you know. <laughs> the, the, so, only, the only thing I'm going to request and demand when we're talking today is uh, I want some form of constructive criticism of the book, and I'm sure we'll get there, <laughs> but uh, would, love to, would love to get your notes. Well, I think, and we'd love to get yours. So um, this book, uh, you had published in 2018, you published an, an essay in the New York Times titled, quote, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. And I know that subsequently you were the first former Trump administration official to endure, endorse Joe Biden and rallied other people to do the same. So what caused you to sort of see the light? Yeah, well, I mean, <clears throat> this isn't intended to be self-serving, but it's going to sound that way. And, and I promise you, you're going to hear a lot of self-criticism in the conversation. But um, I, I never didn't see the light on Trump and that from the get go. I mean, before Donald Trump rose to power, I mean, anyone who says they didn't know who the guy was is just lying to you or they're trying to sell something. I mean, it, you know, I'm a lifelong Republican it was very evident to all of us in the Republican Party who that man was. In fact, so much so that there was outright panic within the GOP. And at the time, I was working under Paul Ryan when he was Speaker of the House. And Ryan and his leadership team, which included Kevin McCarthy, uh, were really, really pretty much apoplectic that Donald Trump was even getting attention. And at that point, you know, he was by no means the front runner. So, you know, from those early days, I was really involved in the efforts to, you know, try to stop the guy. None of us, and certainly not even Donald Trump himself, thought he would win the presidency. But when he did, there was a, a pretty ugly moral choice to face, which was, okay, stay on Capitol Hill and see if you can do some good here, or, you know, consider going in. And in your area of expertise, can you provide stability? And for me, that was in the national security realm. I had a bunch of offers to go work in the White House under Trump. And, and I'll be honest, to a young guy in the GOP, some of those would have been dream jobs, you know, to go be deputy Homeland Security Advisor, Homeland Security Advisor to the President, just dream jobs. Hmm. But it was really, really clear that that would be career suicide to be that close to the guy. But when a mentor of mine, John Kelly, went in at DHS and asked me to come over and help him, I thought, okay, this is a way I can be far enough from the craziness of Trump, but still do some good on the national security side. Where I was catastrophically wrong was in buying into this thesis that there was a so-called axis of adults in the administration who could protect us from Trump. And in fact, I'll go a step further, Bill and Buzz, and say I probably was somewhere in the top 10 people in the country sort of promoting this idea that there was an axis of adults protecting people from Trump. Uh, and it proved to be very wrong. Because while in the first year, uh, there was a lot of, you might call success behind the scenes in safeguarding uh, against his worst decisions, by year two, all of that was out the window. And Trump was unconstrained, and he was firing the people that were trying to be guardrails. Um, and, and, it, and it was evident we had been wrong in trying to think that we could contain the scarier aspects of his character. Well. So, Miles Taylor, uh, you've written this book, a new book, 
Um, it was just released last week. It's called Blowback, a warning to save democracy from the next Trump. How do we save democracy from the next Trump? Uh, well, the, the answer to that will, I think, to a lot of your listeners, sound pretty ironic coming from me. And let me preface that answer with, you know, of course, as you said, I've published that anonymous opinion piece in the New York Times from within the administration to try to sound the alarm and say to people, listen, it's not as bad as it looks inside the Trump administration. It is so much worse. And uh, and then I eventually quit. And, you know, that other book I published, of course, was anonymously. And then I unmasked myself. And, and I give you that preface to say it is now my belief that the biggest threat to our democracy is anonymity. And what do I mean by anonymity being a threat? Well, I found that today in my former party, in the Republican Party, there's still so many people at the highest levels of the party who think that Donald Trump and the wider movement, uh, the wider MAGA movement, represent a real existential threat to the country. And yet they go on the Sunday shows, they go on cable news, and they stand by their man and they defend Donald Trump. And it's confounding to me that they keep those true opinions private. But it's not just them. In fact, when we parse the data, we actually find that this phenomenon is affecting the country in mass. There's a number of surveys that have shown that the moderate majority of Americans are keeping their true opinions private and say something different in public that they think will prevent them from getting attacked. That collective anonymity, I think, is the biggest danger to our democracy, because the people who don't disguise their true opinions, according to those surveys, are people on the political extremes, especially on the far right. And so if the moderate majority is essentially self-censoring and shutting up, then we're at pretty grave risk of doing this all again and putting someone like Trump in the White House. And the solution, in my mind, as pedestrian as it sounds, as much as it sounds like a kindergarten lesson, is everyday Americans really have to get over that hump of not wanting to say what they really think uh, and tell the truth about the concerns that they have about what's going on in our politics, because it makes it easier for the next person and the next person to do the same. That's how you lower the price of dissent, is you increase the supply. Hi, this is Bill. I'd like you to pause for a minute on a phrase you just used, someone like Trump. I want to know whether your view is that Trump's the issue, Trump is the existential, existential threat, or Trumpism is the existential threat, and Ron DeSantis could be just as dangerous. I, I think actually Ron DeSantis could be um, more dangerous. And, and I'll give you one example. Um, there were policies during the Trump administration. I mean, there was a, a mountain of egregious policies, some that became reality and, and many that did not. But even the ones that we managed to talk Trump out of, policies that we told him were illegal and he ruefully sort of backed down, those types of policies, people like Ron DeSantis are picking up and taking far beyond what Donald Trump ever did, which is a sign to me a clear indicator that there are people who are what I call in the book savvier successors to the MAGA movement who are a little bit more clean cut, a little bit more polished, better educated, but want to do the same things, if not worse. And, and one of the ones I was referring to just now was this idea of 
busing and dumping migrants around the country. I've talked about it a lot, but Donald Trump essentially wanted us to stick migrants at the border in buses and then send them into democratic sanctuary cities to punish those cities and to send a message. And he was he was quite explicit about it. He wanted us to send murderers and rapists. Literally, the president of the United States says, find the murderers and rapists, send them into the cities to sow chaos and disorder. I didn't need to go to the lawyers for that bill and buzz to ask whether that was okay. I mean, seriously, like anyone with half a brain would know that's a pretty psychotic proposal. But I did. I I went to the administration lawyers and they said, yes, that's quite clearly illegal. Uh, And Trump backed down. But that hasn't stopped Ron DeSantis from, you know, flying migrants into Martha's Vineyard and Greg Abbott in Texas doing the same. So I do think the MAGA movement has has spiraled beyond Trump's control. And we're in a position where, you know, some of his competitors are trying to out Trump Trump. And that means they're looking at more ways to weaponize the powers of government for political purposes, which is just not how government is supposed to operate. Which leads me to this question. Is the Republican Party officially an authoritarian, anti-democratic party? That's what it is. It's lost. Not only lost its way, but it's lost. Well, at the upper echelon, I would say the rot is pretty severe. And I think, you know, I don't want to disparage Republican voters in mass. What I would say about Republican voters is I think they've gotten duped big time. Um, And people like Donald Trump and others are grifting off of them because their intent is not to go in and, you know, defend the people. You know, Trump talks a lot about, I am your vengeance. I am your vengeance, which was really baffling to me because when I was writing this book and and the dozens and dozens of ex-Trumpers that I interviewed, you know, kept saying a second term will be all about revenge. And I was thinking, you know, God, when I publish that, are people going to think that's hyperbole? And then true to form, Donald Trump has now been saying very clearly the theme is revenge. But the reason I say Republican voters are getting duped is Donald Trump is not their vengeance. He wants to take office again to get personal revenge. That's that's really it feels absurd that the three of us are talking about that right now as, you know, a realistic thing that could happen. But it is. There's a very, very angry, vengeful man who wants to be the commander in chief again to use those powers to get revenge against people who wronged him. Um, that's not even a B movie or a C movie plot. That's like a D movie that that doesn't even go on the video on demand service. Um, but that's what he wants to do. So I think voters, a lot of them, well-meaning Republicans who are frustrated with the system, have been duped into thinking Donald Trump's going to go fix these problems with government um, when really he wants revenge. But but the broader threat from the party right now, I think, is significant. There is a an authoritarian strain coursing through the veins of the GOP, and it represents a massive threat to the United States. And I've gotten criticized for saying this, and but I will not stop saying it. I don't care about criticism anymore. And that is, I do think, the modern Republican Party, in its current iteration with its current MAGA leadership, is actually one of the biggest national security threats to the United States. And I mean that in the most specific definition of a national security threat, in that their underlying aims pose a danger to the institutions of our democracy, because Trumpism at its core is intended to see democratic guardrails as barriers, not as guardrails to protect democracy, but barriers preventing them from what they want to do. Um, and, and I can't 
I can't think of any other way to describe that besides a national security threat. No, it's it's so powerful. We are speaking with Miles Taylor, who who went from anonymity as uh, an insider who was telling us, showing us, opening the window, opening the curtains to what was going on inside the Trump administration on a lot of different levels, particularly with respect to national security and homeland security, also those federal pardons for any criminal prosecution that arose out of actions in illegally stopping immigration. Um, and uh, now the author of the book, Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump. Before we take a break, the president of the uh, Miles Taylor WHMP fan club, <laughs> our producer Dan Torres, well, who loves your book. What's that? Yeah, I, you just talked about um, the threats that you see. And uh, what I wanted to ask you was essentially, um, how did... Uh, the Republicans do it, um, this MAGA wing within the Republican Party, because you were, are a conservative uh, of those pre-Trump uh, values. And I'm, I'm curious, from your perspective, how was this movement able to usurp uh, its power and take over the GOP? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I am a conservative, and, you know, and I suppose a lot of folks listening probably lean left in their politics. And if, and if we got deep into public policy... They would say, oh, man, I like what this Miles Taylor guy's been saying. And then I'll start to talk about my libertarian views, and they'll say, I do not like what this Miles Taylor guy is saying. <laughs> but, but, but right now, you know, and I, I want to get back to that period so bad when we're, we're, the two sides are talking about actual policy issues. But right now, I've got to band together with people on the left because the bigger threat is – to the actual survival of our republic. It's not an overstatement. I mean, I do think a second term of Donald Trump would spell the likely demise of the American Democratic Republic as we know it. And so we have to team up on that front. But how did, to your question, how did this happen to the Republican Party? It's a very simple and a very ugly and very unfortunate reality, which is that tribalism is one of the most power it's one of the most powerful sociological phenomena, which is from the earliest days, human beings have banded together in tribes to provide themselves security, to start to build society. You know, we could go deep into political philosophy on that subject. But as a consequence of that, people are really, really reluctant to leave their tribes. Tribes become sticky. And in this age of social media, political tribes have become increasingly people's core unit rather than their family or their friends or the town they live in. They've become disconnected from their localities, more connected to their political tribes. Uh, and so that means even when the tribal leaders start to deviate from the underlying norms, the underlying principles that supposedly created the tribe, people are inclined to look the other way because it's more important to them that they're in it than not. And there's an example I give in the book where I talk to my friend Adam Kinzinger. We were down in South Carolina on a retreat and we had the conversation that, you know, Bill, Buzz, you, me, and everyone else have had a billion times over the past few years, which is why the hell do these Republicans know better? But they don't say anything. And I said, Adam, I think it's because they see you and I getting death threats and, you know, putting our families in safe places because they're in danger and, and they don't want to end up like us. And he said, no, there's something they fear more than than death. And I said, there's something they fear more than their families being threatened. He said, yeah, they are more scared of getting kicked out of the tribe than they are of death. We and need to take we need to take really a quick 
We need to take a quick break. We're going to continue our conversation with Miles Taylor on the other side of the break with this question. Is this tribalism fueled by racism and homophobia and anti-trans motivations? We'll be right back. Sometimes it's hard to be a woman. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Saga Communications of New England is looking for an IT administrator to work in a fast-paced and challenging work environment. This position requires a strong self-starter with the ability to quickly learn new processes. You're a team player that can take ownership of local IT operations and contribute to a team of IT engineers. You must possess the ability to juggle and prioritize work while supporting numerous employees in three locations in Western Mass. There will be regular travel to Springfield, Northampton, and Greenfield. Flexibility is the key to success. The ideal candidate will be somebody who has an interest in the broadcast radio industry and knowledge of LAN and WAN support. You should understand Windows Active Directory, networks, router, and firewall functions, and have experience with desktop support of Office 365 and utilizing a help desk environment supporting users in multiple locations. And yes, you'll receive great benefits. Please send your cover letter and resume to itjobs at springfieldrocks.com. Saga Communications of New England is an equal opportunity employer. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Miles Taylor and his incredibly interesting book, Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump as a Trump Administration Insider as a national security expert. Bill, before we took the break, uh, you were asking Miles a question. Yeah. You talked about the tribalism of Trump and Trumpism. Is it tribalism fueled by racism and homophobia anti-trans motivations. How horrifying is Trumpism? Uh, it's pretty ugly. I mean, I think it really is the, 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 the worst devils of our nature rather than the better angels. And let's talk about that specifically, though, the homophobia and the racism, because we just saw something the past couple of days in Florida, this controversy about their state education standards saying that slavery was you know, beneficial to slaves. And, you know, look, Ron DeSantis has come out and said, look, that this is not my fault. I didn't put this in there. This is basically a copy and paste from other standards and blah, blah, blah. He gave all these explanations. And it was the stupidest thing he could have said, because what he should have said was, you know what? People really are hurting when they hear this, that we're going to say slavery had benefits. I don't know how this got in there. 
but I'm going to, I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to fix it. And you haven't heard that from him. And you haven't heard that because people like Ron DeSantis know that they have supporters, a lot of supporters who are bigots. And I don't believe the vast majority of the Republican party uh, is, is, you know, bigoted people. A lot of great, you know, many, most of my friends are still Republicans and they're not bigots, but there's an element of the party that they're unwilling to stand up to that has really, really backwards views about race and religion and homosexuality that I never imagined we would be talking about here in the 2020s. But at this point, the culture wars were supposed to go away. I mean, I thought most of us were becoming socially liberal, even if we were fiscally conservative on the Republican side. But there's someone I spoke to in the book, a close aide to Donald Trump, who said, in a second term, in a Trump 2.0, the domestic policy agenda would be guns, gays, and girls, to pull back any restrictions on guns, to roll back gay marriage. And then I said, what do you mean by girls? He said, well, of course, we're going to make abortion illegal nationwide. I just, I'm confounded by this because the GOP that I went into was trying to become a big tent party and move beyond these issues. And now the culture wars are front and center, front and center, but they're not culture wars being argued about rhetorically, it's culture wars being argued with loaded guns because the rhetoric has become so violent. But Miles Taylor, will those friends that you mentioned who are Republicans and are conservatives, are they going to pull the lever for Trump if it's Biden-Trump? This is the really scary part, is I keep hearing this from folks, is that at the end of, you know, they say they hate Trump and the party needs to move on and, you know, he's a danger and, and, and all the right things. But then if you present them with that question, OK, well, if it's a Trump-Biden rematch, they say, well, you know, as much as I don't like him, I'll have to vote for Trump. But wait, hold on a second. You just said you thought Trump was a threat to our democracy. So but you're still going to vote for him if it's against Joe Biden. And that's one of the things that I am very concerned about when it comes to 2024 is that there were a lot of Republicans who, for the first time in their lives, actually flipped sides and voted for a Democrat. And it helped get Biden elected. And I won't go into the data. We don't have the time. But the data really shows that Biden won some of the key swing states because he won over these Republicans who were sick of four years of Trump. When you look at the polls right now and you look into the crosstabs, a lot of those GOP voters who defected have now gone back to the tribe. They say they won't vote for Joe Biden again. They've been persuaded by GOP rhetoric to come back. And that worries me. That means that Biden probably has even tighter margins than he had before. So there needs to be a concerted effort among Republicans and ex-Republicans like me to try to whip conservatives to come join us in a, in a unity coalition uh, against a prospective Trump candidacy. Um, this is Dan. I, I wanted you to touch on uh, the sort of personal struggles that you dealt with, with after speaking out and uh, telling people that you were the one who authored the book uh, a warning and uh, many of the personal stories you have, I thought were very powerful in your latest book. So can you talk about that? Yeah. And Dan, sorry, I keep hat tipping Bill and Buzz and not you. No, so that's okay. Dan's, Dan's I'm used also to it. here, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> His name just is not alliterative. Um, Dan, it's a, it's a big the, tent studio. That's what we got here. Right. <laughs> and there's a B in big tent. <laughs> You guys did what the Republican Party could not. Um, I, I will be uncharacteristically frank about this. You know, we talked about this a little in commercial break. It was really hard to write some of those portions of the book. And 
I've now come to view myself a little bit as a cautionary tale. You know, I said earlier that anonymity represents a threat to democracy because if we don't if we don't sound the alarm about the dangers, then our guardrails are going to get destroyed. But it's the same in our personal lives. If we ignore our guardrails, we put ourselves at risk of self-destruction. And in the course of going against Trump, this tension I had, this, this, this double life I was leading between anonymous and this, you know, Miles Taylor who was trying to, you know, safeguard the country from within um, really, really had some uh, pretty bad unintended consequences. I started coping by drinking mm-hmm. a lot. I started abusing prescription pills, uh, you know, and found myself uh, in an ER one day after an overdose, having to look in the mirror and say, wow, here you are trying to tell the country Donald Trump is so reckless and such a danger, and you can't even take care of yourself. Uh, but I do think at the risk of it sounding too on the nose, I do think that metaphor applies to all of us. I mean, I I got to a very dark place at the end of the Trump administration. I was alone under armed guard on election night 2020 in a safe house in Northern Virginia. I had a pistol under my pillow um, and I was legitimately suicidal. And no one has to have sympathy for me. I'm in a great place. I found the love of my life and I'm 18 months sober. But when I think about our country, I call it civic suicidal ideation. I mean, right now as a country, incredibly, we're thinking about doing this to ourselves again because Trump is the front runner. And the only way you can imagine that is is potentially uh, us considering throwing it all away. And and that's that's the wake up call that we need right now. Well, that's a great place for us to leave it. Miles Taylor, the book that you have written, Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump. It is available in the local bookstore near you. Uh, It's a really important read. It's really well written. And uh, myself and my wife, we were mesmerized, as was you, Dan. I was, yeah. In reading it. So thank you so much for what you've done, for the truth-telling that the book reflects and for your own journey to restore us to democracy. Miles Taylor, well, thank, thank you. you friends for having me. And, and next time uh, we'll, we'll make that big tent in the studio even bigger and we'll invite some friends. Let's do that. I can't wait. We'll be in Election touch. night 2024. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> on HMV. We'll have you, have you call in, and we can have you for five minutes to tell us what's going on on election night. No, he'll be busy. It's Mar- Miles Taylor for president. Oh, there you go. Oh, heck no. <laughs> Good luck I'm, with the I'm book. I'm running from public office, not for public office. <laughs> thank, thank you, friends. I appreciate it. Have a great morning. Thank you. And we will be right back with Writer's Block and Richard Russo with Megan Zinn right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Rep. Lindsay Sebedosa says it's been very hard to watch the devastation of the recent flooding. Sebedosa says it's not just a question of the immediate impacts, but of the future. Because we can't get into a cycle where every year there's a catastrophic event and we're just providing relief. We have to figure out how we prevent this moving forward. Sabadosa says it's a reminder of climate change. A reminder that climate change is very, very real. I, you know, grew up in Massachusetts and floods in the middle of the summer are generally not a thing. Sabadosa says this is the new reality and legislators are working on how to provide as much relief as possible. A former Amherst man is facing multiple charges related to child pornography. 30-year-old Blake Lassier was in Hampshire Superior Court on Friday for a status conference. Lassier faces 11 charges for offenses dating from December 2021 to March 2022. 
Lassier is currently serving a prison sentence in Oregon on similar charges. A pretrial date is set for August 21st. Plans are moving forward for a new parking lot and green space in the center of South Deerfield. A second public forum was held last week to discuss thoughts on the proposed ideas by Berkshire Design Group. The Leary lot would have a proposed 64 to 79 parking spaces along with green space. The space would also include electric vehicle chargers and would be wrapped around from North Main Street to Elm Street. Final designs will be presented and a third forum held on Monday, August 21st at 6 p.m. For today, we'll have a mixture of sunshine and clouds, slight chance for a spot afternoon shower or thunderstorm, highs 84 to 88. Tonight, partly cloudy, overnight lows 62 to 66. And the alley for Tuesday, partly sunny, chance for an afternoon shower or thunderstorm, highs in the mid-80s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. I grew up in West County, but I didn't know there were places like Nelkrit until I realized that my mom needed some help. My dad was always controlling and kind of jealous. But after I left for college, it was just the two of them, and it seemed like it was just getting worse. My mom wasn't going out as much, and he would check her cell phone all the time to see who she was calling. Then he started threatening her. I talked to a friend who lives in the area, and she told me about Nelquit. I called the hotline because I was worried about her staying in the house that night. They understood why I was so worried, and they were able to help her to get to my grandma's house in Boston. Nelquit, New England Learning Center for Women in Transition, offering 24-hour crisis line support, walk-in appointments, counseling, safe plan, legal services, and supportive supervised children's visitation. If you or someone you know needs Nelquit, please reach out to them. They'll be there. 479 Main Street, Greenfield, Nelquit.org, N-E-L-C-W-I-T.org, or call 772-0871. Future subscribers to Netflix will not be able to get the $10 a month plan. The streaming service is removing that plan from its list of options. In the future, viewers who want an ad-free plan will have to pay $15.50 a month, or they can get a plan with ads for $7. CVS Caremark is teaming up with GoodRx to create the Cost Saver program, which the companies say will automatically provide Caremark members with the lowest price on prescription drugs. Members won't have to take any action. The discounts will be applied automatically. The program starts in January. You may have heard of the artificial intelligence platform ChatGPT. Meet its evil twin, WormGPT. That was created by a hacker for sophisticated email phishing attacks. Security experts say WormGTP is even better at writing phishing emails designed to deceive and defraud consumers. I'm Mark Kaufman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And it is Monday. It's that wonderful time when we get to hear Writer's Block and Megan Zinn. And what do you have that's special for us today, Megan? Well, I've been really looking forward to today's show because my guest is novelist, short story writer, and screenwriter, and one of my favorite writers, Richard Russo. Uh, So very happy to have you here, Richard. Thank you for being here. Um, My pleasure. And Richard is the author of nine novels, including the 2002 Pulitzer Prize winning Empire Falls. And his new novel, Somebody's Fool, released tomorrow, is the third in a trilogy that began with Nobody's Fool and followed by Everybody's Fool and now Somebody's Fool. And in the words of the New York Times review that ran this weekend, he saved the best for last. 
uh, which I loved. Um, and Richard will be appearing on Wednesday, August 2nd at 7 p.m. at Center Church, <laughs> First Congregational Church in South Hadley. The event is sponsored by Odyssey Books, um, and this is a ticketed event, and the price of the ticket includes a hardcover copy of Somebody's Fool. And you can find more info on their website, odysseybks.com. So welcome, Richard. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. So tell us a bit about Somebody's Fool. Well, it, it might interest you to know. I mean, the, the title is kind of low-hanging fruit. Uh, after, <laughs> yes, yes, it is. After, after the first two books. Um, but my working, um, you know, the files that I was typing uh, up were, were all under the title Inheritance. Oh, oh, yeah, that makes and sense. I, I think that in a sense, that's what this book is about. The things that we inherit in life, which in some cases might be money, and in some cases it might be property. Uh, Peter, uh, Sully's son in this novel, has, in, has inherited both of those things mm -hmm. from his father. Mm -hmm. But it's about the other things that we inherit, too. Um, um, genetics. Mm -hmm. None of us none of us escape that trap. <laughs> yeah. um, and so this is... Yeah, this is, and, and one of the things that Peter is going to learn uh, during the course of this this final, I think, mm -hmm. full novel um, is um, just how much he has inherited from his father, which includes, among other things in this book, a to-do list, yes. people to look in on, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. make sure they're they're okay. Obligations, another yeah. form of inheritance, of course. Yeah, he's just inherited. Um, he's inherited all of uh, his father's friends. Um, the people that yes. his father's been looking out for and taking care of. Um, so I would like to ask you to read a selection from the book for us. Sure. I'll, I'll just read a paragraph from the opening, sure. um, kind of, which kind of sets things up yeah. here in terms of what the ground, uh, what ground zero of this new novel mm -hmm. is. Uh, title of the first chapter is Inheritance. The changes would be gradual or that was how the idea had been sold all along. But no sooner did North Bath's annexation to Schuyler Springs become official than rumors began circulating about next steps. North Bath High, the Burrell People's Middle School, and one of the town's two elementary schools would close at the end of the school year, just a few months away. In the fall, their students would be bused to schools in Schuyler. Okay, none of this was unexpected. The whole point of consolidation was to eliminate redundancies. And so education, the most expensive of these, would naturally be at the top of the list. Still, those pushing for annexation had argued that such changes would be incremental, the result of natural attrition. Teachers wouldn't be fired, merely encouraged by means of incentives to retire. Younger staff would apply for positions at the Schuyler Unified School District, which would make every effort to accommodate them. The school buildings themselves would be converted into county offices. Same deal with police. The low, the low slung brick building that housed the police department and the jail would be repurposed. And Doug Raymer, who had been making noises about retiring as the chief of police for police for probably repurposed as well. His half dozen or so officers could apply for positions within the Schuyler PD. Hell, they could probably even keep their old uniforms, the left sleeve of which would bear a different patch. Sure, other redundancies would follow. There'd be no further need for a town council, there being no town, or for that matter, 
or, or for a mayor, which in Bath wasn't even a full-time position. The town already purchased its, purchased its water from Schuyler Springs, whose sanitation department would now collect its trash, which everybody agreed was a significant upgrade. At present, Bath citizens were responsible for hauling their own their, their crap to the dump or hiring the Squeers brothers and letting their fleet of decrepit dump trucks do it for them. Thank you. Sets the tone of the town and what's happened in the past 10 years so beautifully. My guest is Richard Russo, um, and he was just reading from his new novel, Somebody's Fool. Bill, you had a question. I do. Richard Russo, this is a trilogy. It is now. I want to know when you started. Did you have this in mind, or did these characters simply become, well, friends and family over the course of your writing? That was my question. <laughs> Go on. Well, it, I mean, it, it took me, it was, it was over two decades between the first and the second. Mm -hmm. So obviously, no, I had no intention of ever, uh, of ever returning uh, to North Bath again. I thought that I thought the job was done, uh, finished eloquently enough at the end of the, <laughs> at the end of the first book. Um, and I think that the reason that I that I did go back for everybody's fool and then after everybody's fool now to, to somebody's fool is that I simply missed these people. Mm -hmm. um, it's in many ways, uh, a, it's a very personal novel. Um, the main character of, of Sully, who um, has died before the beginning of Somebody's Fool, um, but nevertheless haunts every page of this, of this <laughs> new book. Um, that character was based on my old man. Um, and uh, I gave Sully a lot of, the, a lot of my, my father's backstory as being a D-Day veteran and making it all the way to Berlin and then, and then coming home and finding family life difficult after after um, such a, an experience on the world stage. Like Sully, my father wanted to, when he got back from that war, he wanted to create um, a world so small uh, that he could navigate it drunk if need be. <laughs> um, and I discovered that that um, um, that returning to to North Bath um, gave me a chance to spend some more time with my father. Uh, I felt cheated uh, with him. I didn't get to know him very well until I was old enough to occupy the bar stool next to his. And it wasn't that long after that that, that he um, um, that he became ill and died. Um, and so, you know, returning to this place got, gave me a chance to, to, to reboot a relationship. He was an, an incredibly entertaining man. Um, and, um, he continues to be, um, uh, he's been gone now these many, many years, but he continues, he continues in death to be every bit as entertaining as he was in real life. Yeah, very much like Sully. Um, and that brings up a question, um, I've often thought about your books and one of the reasons I love them is it seems like you really like and have compassion for your characters. You, you like them no matter how flawed they are, and they very often are quite flawed. Um, is that something um, you're conscious of that you approach deliberately, or is it just kind of the way that you see humans? Well, these books take me, on average, around four years to write. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to... I like to put people in them that will keep me entertained mm. for such a long period of time, which means that I'm going to have to find a way to enjoy their company. Uh, and so I tend um, to fill my books with people that I'm that I feel like I'm going to enjoy being around for the next four years. And I have no more desire to do that in 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 a fictional setting than I would in real life. I, in real life, I like to surround myself with people that I enjoy 
being around and and um, and and sharing stories with, and I think that they just find their their way into into my um, novels, and I'm a basically I have a, a you know a comic sensibility mm -hmm. comedy in mm -hmm. the sense of the Shakespearean sense yeah. more than the joke making sense. Absolutely, um, I'm. I'm a fairly optimistic, uh, cautiously optimistic uh, guy. Uh, these times are trying that optimism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, have, I have to admit, but but I remain cautiously optimistic, and and uh, so I surround myself with people that I think, you know, they may not, they may have not have these, they may not have huge victories in life, but they have very significant smaller ones yeah. um, that I find. The small victories in life strike me as every bit as important um, and entertaining, perhaps more importantly, um, than, um, than, than those people who conquer the world or imagine that they have. Yeah, that's beautiful. Bill, you want to ask? When you're writing, do your characters do and say things that you didn't <laughs> expect? Oh, I wouldn't be writing if they didn't. <laughs> they, <laughs> you know, the only time I, I worry is when I experience has taught me to worry uh, is when is when my characters are, are following my designs too closely. Ah, yeah. uh, I just I just love it when they say and do um, surprising things. That's what returns me to my to my uh, to my writing tablet and my and my computer every day. It's just for the it, for me, I suspect it's just a lot like being a cop. Mm. Um, the, the, the day you get in trouble being a cop is the day that you think you've seen it all. That's the, that's the day that something, something horrible will happen to you. Um, and for a writer just to be ready for, to be ready for, you know, surprises, that's, that's where the joy is. Yeah, I love that. Um, so my guest is Richard Russo. We're talking about his new book, Somebody's Fool. And we take, uh, heading into a break and we'll be back in a few minutes with more. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Miss an episode of Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg? Want to hear the stories and perspectives of local business leaders? Click on podcasts at whmp.com. Talk the Talk, Western Mass Business Show, Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, The Hustler Files, Panorama, and more. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local talk in the Valley for the Valley. WHMP.com. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. 
20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build the solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Our beloved local hero farms, way too much rain, wiping out crops, wiping out entire farms. Our local hero farms matter too much to let them go down. We're all together on a rescue mission. Go to the Help Flooded Farms page at the CESA Local Hero website. Support a specific farm or donate to CESA's Emergency Farm Fund. Local Hero Farms, think what life would be like without them. Go to the CESA website, buylocalfood.org, to the Help Flooded Farms page, and kick in what you can. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And Megan Zinn, talking to a very special guest, is going to be an event at the Odyssey. Could you tell us about the event? Yeah, we're talking to Richard Russo, and um, Richard will be appearing at... Um, with Odyssey Bookshop on Wednesday, August 2nd at 7 p.m. at the First Congregational Church in South Hadley, uh, which is across the street from the bookstore, essentially. The, uh, the event is sponsored by Odyssey Books. As I said, it's a ticketed event. The price of the ticket includes a hardcover copy of Somebody's Fool, and you'll find more on their website at odysseybks.com. Uh, Richard, um, yesterday um, you, you had a piece in the New York Times, a little interview, and um, they asked one of their standard questions, which is if you could have um, a, a literary dinner with um, any literary figures, who would it be? And you you turned it on its head a little bit and named uh, several um, songwriters. Um, it didn't it didn't really surprise me that much because these are songwriters who share some qualities um, with you in their writing. Um, Springsteen, James McMurtry. Leonard Cohen, Towns Van Zant, Joni Mitchell, John Prine. Um, do, do you feel that you've been in, as influenced by songwriters in your writing as much as by novelists? I don't know whether as much, mm-hmm. but I've, I've, I've certainly got an amazing amount of delight from hanging around um, with, with writers like um, James McMurtry. I chose these writers, I mean, I love lyric songwriters mm-hmm. too. If I, was, if I was talking about if I had been talking about just my favorite songwriters, um, some other people um, might have been on that list. Um, but I, I chose those those writers like Towns Van Zant, um, who um, told stories like yeah. Poncho and Lefty, mm-hmm. and James McMurtry, one of my absolute favorite um, singer songwriters. I I put on the list, and one of the things that I <laughs> I, I had the most fun was that I, I was allowed to, to uh, by naming these writers, I was allowed to also quote a line or two from mm-hmm. each of their yes, songs. Yes, yes, uh, I saw that. <laughs> so I had fun with, a uh, little fun with John mm-hmm. Prine there. Um, exactly, Odo Kazimoto. Yes, right, right, <laughs> I right. I won't quote the rest of it since it's a little bit off color, but, but, um, but yeah, this is, that was, that was the most fun I had actually in, in that, uh, in that by the book segment. Yeah, that, that could be a rabbit hole, just trying to find your favorite um, line from some of these um, singer-songwriters. Have you ever tried to be a lyricist? Have you ever tried to put words to music? I don't think so, no. Back in, uh, back in the day, um, I put myself through graduate school, or, or at least partly through graduate school, since my teaching assistant stipend didn't, mm. didn't cover all of it. 
Um, I, I sang and played 12 string guitar in a, in a restaurant in Tucson for gosh, three or four years anyway. Are there recordings Thursday, Friday and Saturday nights, but, but no, honestly, during that entire time when I was, when I was entertaining, um, um, playing for drunks in a restaurant, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> um, during that, if I was ever going to do it, I would have done it then. Yeah. And, and, um, my, my becoming a novelist, my becoming a writer, um, began almost to the day that I set that guitar down ah. and decided no more of this because I thought I had, I had only creative enough, only enough creative energy to cover one of those two pursuits. And once I decided, once I got the writing bug, um, I, I put the guitar down and, and have not picked it up again. Although when the boss comes on the radio, Mm. There is that temptation yeah. still there to strap on that Fender guitar and plug it into an amp on its loudest setting. Yeah, yeah, and, you're, <laughs> and, and go to town. And you're both your stories would work. It would work as songs. It would work. Um, also, I um, kind of backing up to the book. Your your new I think it was Richard Russo and his new book is Somebody's Fool, and um, in. The, the two of your key characters in the trilogy, Doug Raymer and Sharice Bond, are cops, the white man and a black woman who were in a relationship until recently. Spoiler alert. Um, how did you approach writing about police and race in an essentially comic novel in the post-George Floyd era? Well, um, that was one of the challenges of, of this book, um, that part of the story, um, um, Raymer, uh, Raymer and Sharice. And I would also add Jerome to that too, Jerome, because yes. if there's a if there's a love story in this book, um, it's it's really the one between Raymer and Jerome, and that. they 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 find each other. Um, um, Jerome is in terrible need of a really really good friend, mm -hmm. and of course Raymer is in is 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 in need of an education. Mm -hmm. um, in the first book, it wasn't really necessary to go into the relationship, um, um, the, the the relationship between uh, Raymer and Sharice, it was fairly simple. Um, he was in love with her. She was a very attractive black police officer. Um, um, but race didn't really come into that book. And in this book, after George Floyd's murder, there was simply no way to write this book without without going there. And um, and 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 without including in this book too a really really bad cop. Mm -hmm. um, but the Raymer but the Raymer Jerome story simply accounts for the fact that that if if Charisse and um, and Raymer were to marry, and if they had a child, that child would be black, and the world would start working on that child, mm -hmm. which is something that Raymer and it, Raymer just, it never would have occurred to him. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's so much more to learn and you can learn so much more. And how can people meet Richard? Yeah. Um, Richard will, Richard Russo will be appearing on Wednesday, August 2nd at 7 p.m. at Center Church in South Hadley with Odyssey Books and it's a ticketed event and you can find more on the Odyssey website, theodysseybooks.com. Thank you, Richard Russo, for being here and talking with us a little bit. Um, I'm loving the new book, and um, it's been a pleasure. Well, I'm looking forward to being back at the Odyssey. My, my bookseller daughter, who owns a bookstore um, here in Portland, 
um, cut her teeth selling books at the Odyssey, at the Odyssey uh, many, many years ago. So it's I've got perfect, some friends there. It's a perfect well, thank place you so, to, to learn. Richard Russo and his book is Somebody's Fool. Thank you so much for joining us today on Talk the Talk. And like Richard, remember to walk the walk. I've got nothing left to play. I've got nothing. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP. Are you an educator? Want to be more confident teaching about environmental issues? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst offers hundreds of curriculum units, lesson plans, classroom activities, and professional development workshops for K-12 teachers. Come check us out. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI 